Ben. Thank you, Howard. <clears throat> um, please come next week. Lewis is so nice to say we're generous to have you come. It's really entirely selfish. We have 3,000 blueberry bushes and 2,000 blackberry bushes. And you pick them or we pick them. Now, you really think we're asking you over because we're generous? Um, we need help. This is the Tom Sawyer approach to getting your berries picked. Uh, we've got big, big, big trash buckets. So after you pick them, uh, dump them in there for us to keep. <laughs> no. No, you, you come, you pick them, you take them home, and you freeze them, you cook them, you make jams, you make jellies. But we have literally um, uh, blueberries galore. Uh, they've started ripening now. So uh, the blackberries, this is our first year to be harvesting those, and so there are not as many, but there still are a pretty good bit. And you, uh, please rest assured, you can come, you can eat them off the vine. Uh, all of our gardening is organic. We have no insecticides or pesticides or, or artificial fertilizer sprayed on the plants. And so they're, they're safe to eat. They've been washed by rainwater and sprinkler water. Uh, so please um, come. Now, when I say come, <clears throat> some of you don't come to our church, uh, our Sunday school socials. There's probably a number of different reasons. Uh, there have been a number of reasons historically I've not gone to Sunday school socials. Either I'm busy, and that one you can't do them much with, um, uh, Mike Hudgens has a relative getting married. I told them to call and see if they could put the wedding off because it conflicted with the Sunday School Social. I'm not sure he'll be able to do that, but if you've got other plans, you've got other plans. Another reason a lot of people don't come is you don't really have good friends that you hang around in Sunday School. And uh, is, who wants to go spend the Sunday afternoon sweating out in somebody's backyard where you don't really know many people? Um, I have a couple of suggestions if, if that fits you. Uh, number one, come anyway. Just give it a go and make it a point to, to find other people who may be in that position because God may be putting you there to help someone else plug in who showed up because I pushed them into it. Uh, a second option is if you've got good social friends that you like to do stuff with, use this as an opportunity to bring them. Um, they don't have to go to church here. They don't have to go to Sunday school here. They don't even have to show up next Sunday. They can just meet you over at the picnic or meet you somewhere else. And we'd love to get to meet them. We promise we'll be nice and uh, uh, tell them to come over and, and that way you've got your built-in safety net of friends in case you get over there and find yourself bored to tears. Um, last point has left my brain. Next Sunday, if you do bring a guest with you to Sunday school um, uh, or want to bring some other folks from church here, um, we're going to have a fun class for me. It's a fun class for me to teach. Next Sunday, uh, contrary to everything I've told you so far, <laughs> we're now close enough to where I really know what we're going to do. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew and what it is and what it was within the, the Passover feast in which it was instituted and what it means to some extent for us today. And so it, it'll be a very good lesson from a biblical literacy perspective because it's stuff we need to know and learn about but it'll also be a good lesson because it's fun and it's interesting and it, it's, it's something that affects all of us. Uh, uh, we'll be comparing uh, uh, a number of different ways the Lord's Supper is practiced and, and where they come from uh, as much as time will permit. So with that, does anybody need a lesson? I see the Cravers are back there with lessons. Today we are the discourses in Matthew. There are five major discourses 
And a discourse is Jesus basically standing up and, and interchanging in conversation with uh, uh, his disciples generally. Uh, and and it's, it's kind of his, um, his speech, if you will, his uh, state of the union message uh, uh, or, or whatever it may be. The first discourse in Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. We've already covered that, so it will not be dealt with today. That's chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. The second discourse in Matthew is found in the Commission of the Apostles. It's chapter 10. That we have not dealt with yet, so that's going to be the first that we talk about, the first uh, uh, um, discourse. The third are the parables in chapter 13, and we covered that when we looked at parables. We won't cover it again. The fourth are the parables with a little mixed-in narrative in chapter 18. We've also covered that, so we will not be covering that again this morning. The fifth discourse is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's contained in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. Uh, we will cover that this morning. Very difficult chapters to understand in some ways. We'll be looking at that. In addition to these five major discourses that Jesus has in Matthew, there are some minor discourses or minor conversations that we need to also cover in the interest of being thorough to the book. So we will do that as well after we cover the discourses. Let's start with the discourse of the Commission of the Apostles. It starts in Matthew chapter 10. If you have your Bible, and by the way, Philip's seen that we've got some more NIV study Bibles out here. Uh, uh, grab one if you don't have one. Uh, or next Sunday before class, grab one if you need one. And we've got, uh, uh, I don't know that they're all out on the table, but we've got a good supply again. So uh, please don't uh, let lack of a Bible hinder your spiritual growth. The commissioning discourse in Matthew chapter 10 starts out with Jesus uh, uh, calling his 12 disciples. And I put the word disciples in yellow for a reason. Uh, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. <clears throat> disciples. It's the Greek word mathetes. Mathetes means a, a learner or a pupil or a disciple. If you were a Greek teacher in uh, uh, a school, your students would be disciples. They would be mathetes. They, they would be the ones who learned from you, the teacher. Jesus was called a rabbi, which was a Hebrew teacher. And as a teacher, he had disciples or he had students. And these were people who followed him. It did not just include the 12 apostles, as we call them. It included lots of disciples, lots of students, lots of learners. So when you see the word disciple in your New Testament, you need to be thinking in terms of a student or a learner. That's why we want to be disciples of God. We want to learn from Him. Make sense? Okay. If you look, though, at verse 2, Matthew adds a sentence. He says, these are the names of the 12 apostles. He called his 12 disciples. Those are 12 special students to him. Gave those 12 authority to drive out evil spirits, heal disease and sickness. And then these are the names of the 12. Here, Matthew uses a different word. He uses the word apostles. This is the only time Matthew uses the word apostle. Matthew almost always uses the word disciples to refer to the 12. Apostle means a messenger. It comes from the Greek word apostolos. It means a messenger. It means uh, uh, someone who, who uh, is sent out on, a, on an errand commissioned by a general 
to, to take a message to the troops or commissioned by the king to take a message to another uh, leader or something. An apostolos, an apostle, and we take our English just from that Greek word, apostolos. An apostolos, an apostle, is someone who's been specifically commissioned to take a message. So there were 12 apostles that are kind of um, uh, harken back to the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 was a very complete number. And so you've got 12 that were specifically chosen out of the disciples by Jesus to be specially commissioned by him to carry forth a message. And that starts out here. And that's what the commissioning discourse is. It's Jesus telling these 12 that they are to go out into the towns and into the areas. And these are the instructions Jesus gives them. They're to do acts of compassion. They're to heal the sick, raise the dead. They're to cast out demons. They're to minister to the people as they go out. The word of Jesus Christ, the word of God for you and for me and for everyone is never merely one of eternal salvation. Hear me. The word of Jesus Christ for you and for me is never one only about salvation. Jesus himself did not merely come to earth and save us. Hand in hand with God's salvation eternally is God's ministry of mercy and compassion on earth. Nowhere does Christianity teach when someone comes to you with a need, your response needs to be, well, I will pray for your soul. And you send them away naked and starving. The Christian response is one of mercy and ministry on earth as well as eternity. And there are a number of reasons why. Why would anyone listen to you tell them about the condition of their soul? As if you really care about them and their lost state when you don't care enough to see that they're fed. When you don't care enough to see that they're clothed. To see that they're comfortable. To see that they have a job. To see however you can minister. If you want someone to receive from you a true care and concern about their eternal soul, you need to send it hand in hand with a care and concern about their here and now. And it's been no different. Jesus did not send his apostles out merely to preach salvation. He sent them out to do acts of compassion and mercy. And with that teaching comes a trust relationship and an appreciation that leads to salvation. Now, in the process, Jesus told his apostles, his disciples, you don't need to take extra provisions. It will be provided for you. You don't need to take extra sandals. You don't need to take anything. You go into the town, you deliver the message and let people minister to you. And if they don't minister to you, you can shake the dust off your feet and not leave them with your peace. But give other people a chance to minister to you as well. That's a message for all of us. In the process of us being compassionate and ministering to other people, sometimes there are people with a personality type that they never want to be ministered to. And you need to leave yourself open and let God minister to you and show you love and compassion as well as you show others. Jesus tells his apostles that they will meet ingratitude and they will meet persecution. When that happens, Jesus says, they need to know that it's happening for the sake of Jesus. They need to be prepared to be even killed. But know in the process that they are never alone.
that God, Jesus, the Spirit is with them in the midst of the persecution and the ingratitude. Um, Jesus sends his apostles out with this commission. The commission itself, when you read it, if you're not real careful, you'll look at it and you'll say, well, this doesn't make sense. Because Jesus is sending them out just for a short time period. Then they all come back together and none of them died. And yet Jesus says, you know, you'll get killed on my account. The commission that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 10 is not merely for the one month or two months or one week or however that long is that the apostles went out and then came back to Jesus. It was a commission that was a lifetime commission. It's just the apostles went out for temporary. They came back. Of course, after Jesus died, they went out again. And they did, some of them, give their lives for Jesus in a martyrdom way. Um, so that's the commissioning discourse. And here is the rule. And this is at the end of the discourse. Jesus says, Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. <clears throat> now there is a spiritual principle here that we are to follow. It is one of the bizarre um, principles of the Bible, for lack of a better word. I could I, That'd be a fun book to write. Bizarre principles of the Bible. Um, the, the principle is, you want to win, you need to lose. Victory through surrender. If you want to gain Christ in your life, you need to lose your life for His sake. Now, um, how many of you saw the uh, eight mile thing with Eminem that have enough guts to raise your hand? Three, four, okay. Um, Eminem is a, 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 an artist, a rap artist. Uh, if he stood on his head while he was doing his raps, he'd be W and W. Um, Eminem, okay, I'm sorry. I tell that joke for the benefit of my daughters. They get very upset because dad is not spelled M and M. It's E M. Okay, I was just joking. Um, Eminem is a, is a vocal, um, uh, I, won't, I won't sacrilege the word prophet with him. Um, he's profane in so many ways, that's not fair. But he is a vocal, uh, he is a spokesperson for a good bit of America these days. And it's very interesting to listen to his lyrics. He's got a song in the Eight Mile um, uh, soundtrack called Lose Yourself. And in the, the, the chorus that he raps in there, if I understand it right, is um, you got to lose yourself in the music, the moment. You own it. You better never let it go. No. You've only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow because opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Blow meaning to stand up and rap. See, it's an artist who's trying to rap and he's got this one chance and, and he's trying to figure out how to get out of the rut and the ghetto life that he knows. And in this rapping competition, he's going to get up on stage and he's already choked one time and he's nervous and his knees are weak and his arms are heavy and... Uh, he's thrown up already his mom's spaghetti and everything rhymes. And uh, uh, so in the process of this, he recognizes in this lyric, the way he will find his success is by losing himself 
in the music and in the moment. And he says, that's what you've got to do. You get a shot one time. Sometimes you only get one shot in your life. And you need to lose yourself to find yourself and to get what you want. It's an interesting principle uh, that, that he's able to grasp onto in a secular way that has its roots in what Jesus is teaching us. The roots are, if you really want to find your life, then don't live with your life as the center of the universe. Give your life up. And that's how you'll find your life. If you, it's the principle that, that permeates throughout different aspects of your life. Jesus says, if you want money, you need to learn how to give it away. Because the people who are able to give it are the people who God at least wants to give it to. Anybody else who has it doesn't know how to give it away. It's a curse instead of a blessing. If you want to know how to, to love your wife, if you want your wife to love you, husbands, the principle in the Bible is to love your wife first. See, Paul says for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, the way Christ loved the church is the same way the sun and the moon react. The, the moon doesn't have its own source of light. It reflects the light of the sun. And if the sun is not shining, the moon has no light to reflect, right? Husbands, in the same way, are to love their wives. You know, Christ came and His love for the church was not a demanding love, first and foremost. First and foremost, it was a demonstrative love. It was Jesus loving us. It was Jesus pouring His life out for us. It was Jesus being the Son, showing us how to act, showing us how to love. We love because He first loved us, Scripture says. And so, in the same ways, husbands are to love their wives. Husband wants to be loved. It's not, hey, you love me. It's, let me love you. You lose yourself. You want your life then you don't live for your life. You live for Jesus. And that's where you'll find your life. And it'll be the kind of life worth finding. And so that's the principle. And that's why the apostles are to go out and to do these things they're supposed to do. Not because it's going to make the apostles look good and feel good. The ingratitude doesn't feel good. The persecution doesn't feel good. The betrayal will not feel good. The ultimate death some will pay will not feel good. But in the process of living their lives for a grander purpose, they will find their life. The real life worth living. And if you have no purpose in your life, and you don't feel like your life's worth living, then you need to get outside of yourself. And you need to live your life for others. That's the principle. So the question I would ask you is, who are you living for? Right now, each one of you, just ask yourself, who am I living for? Am I living for me? Or am I living for God? Who are you living for and why? Okay, next subject. Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. <clears throat> and the reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Hence, the Olivet Discourse. The disciples came to him. Uh, if you read uh, commentaries, you read theological books, they all call it the Olivet Discourse. Now we know why. Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. It's shorter than the Sermon on the Mount, but since he was sitting on the Sermon on the Mount for the Sermon on the Mount, he's sitting on this Mount, this could be like the Sermon on the Mount Junior. 
But that's not what they call it. You call it that in theological circles and you're going to cause people to question where you got your training. You're going to say, it's the Olivet Discourse. And they're going to say, ah, did you go to Vanderbilt Divinity School? And you'll say, no, CFBC, Biblical Literacy. <laughs> it's very difficult material in the Olivet Discourse. Let me give you some samples. I did not bring my good Bible for samples. Let's see how we can do here. Um, chapter 24, look at the start of this. Jesus left the temple, was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, to the buildings of the temple. Do you see all these things? Jesus asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Uh, see to it, you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Now keep on going down here as Jesus is talking. And look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let, those, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray the flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And he keeps talking and he keeps talking. And look what he does toward the end of this. In verse 30. Let's see if I can get it up here right. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know it's near right at the door. I tell you the truth. Look at this verse. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now that's kind of a perplexing passage of Scripture. Because you read that and Jesus says, you know, the end is the, first of all, all the stones from the temple are going to be torn apart. There's going to be uh, great travail and you're going to need to flee to the mountains. You pray it doesn't happen in the wintertime. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And you're going to see the Son of Man coming in all of His glory and the angels will be gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth. And this generation will not pass away till it has happened. You see why that's a perplexing problem? Scripture? A lot of people read this Scripture and say, well, this Scripture comes from Jesus 
trying to make his apostles think that he would return in their lifetime. And he was just wrong. A lot of people think that this was a scripture written by someone else later and stuck in there. A lot of people think that this scripture just uh, doesn't make any sense and they just write it off. Okay, so what do we think? Well, let's look at it. Because while this is very difficult material, there is uh, uh, some insight that can be gained from the passage. I'm going to go to the PowerPoint instead of having the Scripture up there. But if you've got your Bibles open, you may want to try and follow along. Matthew chapter 24. There is difficult material here. Jesus gives some difficult statements for us to understand. But I think the key to it are the difficult questions asked by the apostles. Because Jesus is answering some very difficult questions. Look at the questions. The apostles say, tell us when will this happen? Now that's a reference to the stones being torn down of, from the outbuildings of the temple. Jesus says not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. They're going to all be ripped down. This temple is going to be torn apart. The apostles are saying, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? There are three questions being asked here and unknown to the apostles, there are different time periods that these questions involve. When Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and the outbuildings being destroyed with not one stone being left on the other, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And it was a time when the Jews did flee to the hills and to Masada where they were ultimately wiped out. And, and, and the temple was destroyed. And all of the outbuildings were torn apart. And you can go find the Wailing Wall, but from those outbuildings you find not one stone left on top of another. That happened in 70 A.D. But when the apostles ask, and they ask, when will this happen, what Jesus is talking about as far as the temple, they're thinking that, that the apostles are thinking that this must be the coming of Jesus as King and as Messiah and the end of the age right now. And they want to know when the Messianic age with Jesus reigning is going to happen. So they want to know when will this happen. Well, Jesus answers. But when, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus answers that question as well. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answers that question as well. And so in the answers of Jesus, we do find a perplexing blend of things. Those answers concern the temple destruction that happened in 70 A.D. And that's when the abomination, when the, the pagans came into the temple and the Israelites did and the Jewish Christians did flee to the hills. But there is more than that in Jesus' answer. Jesus answers the other questions about His second coming. So we see blended in some passages that are talking about the destruction of the temple and some passages that are talking about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, and it's toward the end where Jesus says in the second coming, the sheeps are going to be separated out from the goats. And uh, that is the, the second coming. So difficult passage. And then it ends, or we're going to end our discussion of it with this difficult part where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, just this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened is one of the most misread scriptures, I think, in the gospels. It's misread because Jesus is not saying the generation of listeners. 
Jesus does not mean the apostles. Jesus does not mean you 12 listening to me, your generation will not pass away until all of these things, the second coming and all happens. What Jesus has just done is given us signs of the end times. In answer, what will be the signs of it? The end of the age? Jesus says wars and rumors of wars and all of these things and fake messiahs and all of this will be happening. And Jesus says, when this happens, think about the fig tree. When the shoots of the fig tree start coming out and the little figs start coming, you know it's almost time to be eating the figs. You don't know what day and what hour the fig will ripen, but you can look at the fig tree and you can tell the time is near. Jesus says, when all of these events start happening and the time is near, then this generation, the generation of that time period, won't pass away until Jesus does come. So that this generation here, when he says, I tell you the truth, this generation is talking about the generation of the fig tree, if you will. It's talking about, if you keep it in context, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know summer's near. Even so, when you see these things, you know it's near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, the generation that sees these things won't pass away until everything's happened. Jesus does not come back partially. Jesus will not come back to one part of the world only. When Jesus comes back, He'll come back world over. It's not, it's not a partial thing. Um, I hope that helps. Difficult passage of Scripture. Next, clean and unclean. Now, we've gone through the major discourses. These are the last 15 minutes of class are just minor little passages we need to know in Matthew that are minor discourses. In chapter 15, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they said, we have, uh, I mean, it's pretty clear to us that, that you're, you're horrible. You're a bad rabbi, you're a bad teacher, and your students, your disciples, see when they call them your disciples, now you know that word means your students, your pupils. Okay, you must be a pretty sorry teacher because we've been watching your students. And sometimes they don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, first of all, they're probably boys. <laughs> there was a Jewish tradition. You had to wash your hands before you ate. It was the right thing to do. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Not in the Bible, by the way. Um, so the Pharisees question Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. He must be a pretty bad teacher. I mean, even Barney teaches you to wash your hands before you eat and to brush your teeth and not let the water run while you're brushing your teeth and having so much fun. You never let the water run. Um, not many classes can you get Eminem and Barney in the same Sunday morning. Uh -huh. um, so... The Pharisees come up to Jesus and said, You're, you know, they're just putting dirt in their mouth. And Jesus says, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Why don't you honor your parents? You know, like one of the Ten Commandments. You tithe to the finest degree. You'll tithe your mint and come, but you won't take care of your parents when they need something. And then Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then I love it. If Jesus had had PowerPoint, he'd have done it better. But this is the best I can do. 
Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth from dirty hands that makes you unclean. It's what's coming out of your heart that decides whether or not you're clean. You don't wash your hands before you eat. You get some dirt in your mouth. That's not what makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is what's coming out of your heart. The evil thoughts, the murder, the adultery, the sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Don't you tell me I'm a bad teacher because my disciples are unclean because they put dirt in their mouths. I'll tell you to weed from your heart your hatred and your lust and your greed and your envy. Because you're the ones who are not clean. You know, if I'd been one of those Pharisees that day, I'd have gone on home and just not felt like I'd really won the argument. Next, chapter 16, Peter and the Rock. An interesting passage of Scripture, uh, uh, one that the Catholic Church historically has used uh, uh, as an understanding or a, a framework for seeing Peter as the first in the apostolic succession uh, of papal authority. Um, let's look at the passage and see what we can glean from this passage. Jesus says to there at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to his apostles, who do the people say that I am the son of man? The apostles answer and they say, well, some were saying that you're John the Baptist, who of course had been beheaded. Others were saying you're Elijah, the prophet has come back. Others are saying you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? What about you? What are your thoughts? And Peter speaks out. Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. It's interesting, just side irony here. This same chapter is one at the end where Jesus says, I'm going to have to go and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, oh, don't do that, God. I mean, Jesus, don't do that. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't too good on telling whose voice was who. You know, at the start of the chapter, it's God revealing it to him. A little bit later, he's got Satan whispering in his ear and, you know, but bless his heart, he was always talking. Um, <laughs> blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, was not something revealed to Peter by man. It's something that God had revealed to Peter. And so Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? There's a wonderful pun that takes place here. A wonderful pun that we miss in the English. But it's a, a pun that, that Matthew is recording for us that also has great meaning to it. So we need to look at it and it helps us understand a little bit of what Jesus is saying. Um, here's the pun. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The word for Peter in the Greek is Petros. And it literally means a, a, a stone, a detached stone, a, a rock, a boulder. And so he says, I tell you, you are a rock. 
you're a stone, a detached stone, a petros. And on this rock, now the word rock there is petra, which means the bedrock. It's not detached. It's part of the foundation. It's part of the earth. I tell you, Peter, you're a detached stone. And on this bedrock, I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. One thing that is clear from this passage is that the confession of faith Peter made that Jesus is the Christ, Peter makes as one detached stone. Okay? But that is the bedrock foundation of the whole church. If Jesus is not Messiah the Christ, we have no church. If Jesus is not Messiah Christ, we worship in vain. If Jesus is not Messiah Christ, what are we doing here? If Jesus is not Messiah Christ, it is a pointless existence. So it is the fact that Jesus, the fact that Jesus is Messiah Christ, is the foundation, the bedrock upon which the church is built. And when Jesus said to Peter, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, it was Peter who, first day of the church, opened up the gates to the church in Acts chapter 2 and proclaimed that Jesus was Messiah and 3,000 people were added to the church that day. It was Peter's sermon. Peter was the key, gatekeeper, the key man. He was the one who opened the gates to the kingdom there on the day of Pentecost. We'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 2. Next story. Acts, or Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. There's a rich young man. This fellow is a self-righteous doer. This is a fellow who's got a lot of money. And this rich young man comes up to Jesus and says, What should I do to be saved? Now, if you ask yourself, what do you need to be doing to earn God's love and attention? What can you do in the strength of your power to be saved? If the answer is anything at all other than trust Jesus, then you got the wrong answer. This man wanted to know before Jesus what this man should be doing to earn his salvation. Jesus gives him a very logical answer. He says, oh, don't sin. Keep the law. Now this self-righteous man, do you know what his response was? I've already done that. Anything else? But Jesus knew this man had not kept the law perfectly. And so Jesus found a little chink in his armor. And he just found it and he says, Oh, you're so good at not sinning. Why don't you love your neighbor as yourself? Of course, Jesus puts it in a little more practical way. He says, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man goes away sorrowful because he had much. And then Jesus says something to his apostles. He says to his disciples, to his students. He says, um, it's really, really tough for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't do enough to get in. You've got to have God's work. Um, I was uh, jogging with a lawyer from San Francisco. And uh, he was uh, a nice fella. And 
knew that I have uh, uh, an interest um, uh, in, that, that my faith is important to me, I guess is the way to say it. And I try not to club these guys over the head with it, but if God gives me an opportunity to talk about it, I enjoy it. So this man proceeds to tell me that he says, I go to an Episcopal church as we're jogging. He said, I know you study things theological. He said, I'd like to run by you something we did in Sunday school last Sunday. I said, I'd love to hear it. And he said, we were uh, in class and we came across the passage, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. And he said, we discussed what that was about. And the general consensus was that must have been added later, that Jesus didn't really say that because Jesus was compassionate. And this must have been added by people who were in a lower income level, you know, 50, 75, 100 years later, who were really ticked off at the rich people. And uh, he said, because, you know, otherwise it doesn't make sense. He said, do you agree? Um, it was an interesting thing to be arguing because at the time of the discussion we're jogging um, where we're going to have the picnic next Sunday. We're jogging in our backyard, and, and I can remember exactly where we were on the track, and I thought, maybe he's trying to engender feelings for me because we have a nice backyard or something. I don't know. I think everyone in America is rich, regardless, almost, but, but compared to a lot of the world. But as we're jogging, I said to him, I said, can I suggest an alternative understanding? And he said, sure. I said, let me suggest this. I said, Jesus may have said these words. I said, Jesus was um, maybe the best teacher there's ever been. And teachers use all sorts of tools to teach. And one of the tools teachers use is humor. If you go back and read humor that existed at the time of Jesus, it often was hyperbole or exaggeration or taking things to an extreme. And that just cracked him up. I mean, to us, it doesn't crack us up that much because we have a different sense of humor. Of course, some of us have such a different humor. Everything I think is funny, it doesn't crack anybody up, but it does me. Um, Bob told me the other day, Dr. Bob, said, what do you call a deer without any eyes? No idea. Um... Okay, so, yeah, I mean, different jokes. Back then, though, their sense of humor. What do you call them without any eyes or legs? Still no idea? Um, the, the humor for Jesus' time, though, was a humor of hyperbole, a humor of exaggeration, a humor of making a point. And you can just see after this event with this young man, Jesus telling his apostles, be careful, be careful. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Those people would have been laughing hysterically at that image. I've heard some preachers try and explain this away by saying there was a gate that was a very small gate and it was called the eye of the needle and for a camel to get into that gate it had to get on its knees and it had to crawl through. Well, I've never, I've looked and looked for the source of that story. I hadn't found a gate called the eye of the needle that Jesus was talking about camels having to just wiggle and do the limbo, get the hump down. No, Jesus is just making a statement that is absolutely a wonderful teaching tool because it sticks, it's a good mental image that sticks in the minds of all of his listeners and they laughed hysterically. 
And the idea of a camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle is an absolutely hilarious point. And the apostles got the point because they said, well, then Jesus, how's anybody going to be saved? Jesus says, what's impossible for man is possible for God. Salvation is not possible. No man, rich or poor, can ever do enough to be saved. The salvation will come because Jesus Christ did enough. And that alone is what saves. There is no one who will be in heaven except through Jesus Christ. That includes the baby that dies at three days old who didn't even know enough to accept Christ. That baby is in heaven only because of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die for anybody who's going to be in heaven. A price had to be paid for the sinful condition of man. Rich or poor, it's not going to do it. There are seven woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees. They're not going to see the kingdom. They don't see the kingdom, so woe is them. Woe is them because they're hypocritical in their evangelism. They're dishonest. They've got an attitude that strains the gnat and swallows the camel. Same humor. Um, there's a book entitled The Humor of Christ, which is a wonderful read because he did. He had great humor. You're straining out little gnats while you're swallowing camels. You clean the cup, but you're a greedy drinker. You're a whitewashed tomb. You just make the outside look so pretty when inside you're a bunch of decaying, rotting bones and flesh that's putrid. But boy, it sure looks nice and clean on the outside. Um, you buy these wonderful tombs for these prophets and then you kill the prophets and put them in there. Woe to you. And so here are our points for home. Number one, be real. Stop the hypocrisy. Don't present yourself as something different than you are. If you don't like who you are on the inside, and so you feel you need to present to be different, change who you are. Change who you are. You can do it. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can change who you are. I had a 63-year-old man who's starting to work with us a pretty good bit come into my office the other day and said, Lanier, something's happened since I've started working up here. And I said, I don't, good. I, mean, I hope you're, if you're working up here, something's happening. And he said, no, it's not that. He said, I quit cussing. <laughs> said, I've cussed for 63 years. And I've quit. And I said, you did? And he says, yep. You know what the turning point was? And I said, what? He said, we were at this meeting with a contentious client who we don't get along with very well. And the client had written a letter saying that uh, I, was, I was discussing, I was at the board meeting, a board of directors for this company. And this client made a big deal out of the fact I was telling the company to settle a case when the client said, Lanier, you told me, quote, we have a hell of a case, close quote. I looked at him in front of the board. I said, I did not. Yes, you did. I said, I don't use that word. I don't talk that way. And I wouldn't have said that to you. And I can line up a boat road load full of witnesses that will tell you, I don't talk that way. And the guy, and, and, and the guy was kind of, well, okay. <laughs> He'd made it up. I didn't say that. Now, I'm not saying, oh, look at Holy Mark. I'm not, not at all. I got more sin than all of y'all put together. But that's not one. I try to talk wholesomely. 
And so my 63-year-old buddy's in there saying, yeah, ever since then I decided if he'd said that about me, I'd have had to just deny it, but I couldn't say I don't talk that way because I do, but I don't now. <laughs> Number two, trust Jesus for eternal life. You're not going to get it any other way. Not a person in here is good enough. Doesn't matter if you say hell of a or not. I grew up in Rochester. They had a dip. It was called hell of a good dip. That was the brand name. It was French onion dip that mom and dad bought. I never knew what hell of a was because they didn't talk that way. But we went into the grocery store and I said, Mom, can you get some of that hell of a good dip? <laughs> that was the brand name. I thought that's what French onion dip was called until I was about seventh grade. And now we just buy that dip when we were up there. <laughs> Mom taught me that it may be called that, but we can call it something else. Um, you trust Jesus for eternal life. You won't get it any other way, no matter how you talk. Stand on Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the rock that doesn't roll. <laughs> um, clean up on the inside first. Don't be worried about washing your hands before you eat as much as you are washing your heart. And that's it. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have to say to us each week. And I pray that you will help me do a good job at, at teaching your word in this class. I thank you for the love and encouragement of my friends that come to class with me that are out there. And I reckon every one of them here a friend. And you are the greatest friend to all of us, Father. And we thank you for that. We lean on you. You are the Messiah. You are our Christ. You are our salvation. You are our strength. Please clean us up on the inside. Make us more presentable and make us more real. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.